0: Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel Podcast, where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mort. I'm a songwriter and creativity coach, and I love exploring the power of gentleness in creating conditions for meaningful change from the inside out. Are there people in your life who drive you a bit mad because they hold beliefs that you just find completely outrageous? Maybe you've drifted from uh, certain friends and family members because conversations just seem to turn heated and hostile every time you speak with them. This is something that seems to become worse and worse over recent years. I'm not sure we can necessarily put it down to one thing in particular. Still, catalysts in the modern era can be found in algorithms rewarding outrage, the media basking in any kind of division along lines of identity and belief, and the cynicism, the loneliness, the resentment that's grown from fewer genuinely um, public spaces that give us somewhere to contribute and create rather than to simply consume and produce. I'm really excited to be speaking with a guest for this episode. Conrad Benjamin is the creator of Ideas Digest, which is a podcast that aims to build bridges of connection between worldviews at war. He and his co-host Matt say that politicians, religions, uh, algorithms and mainstream media make money on dividing us all and building higher and higher walls around ourselves. And I really wanted to chat with Conrad about what motivates him to talk about difficult things with pretty divisive characters at times. Because I was really struck listening to Ideas Digest by his sincerity and his genuine desire to connect with humanity beneath certain ideas that people align with and promote. And it was clear to me that there's something driving him at a deeper level that is really uh, compelling and alluring to, to kind of dive into and talk about. There are many examples of gentleness as rebellion in, um, in the episodes that, that Conrad and Matt uh, put together, looking beneath the surface, empathic searching, good faith, things that I believe the world needs so much more of right now. A lot of the modern human experience is categorised and informed at the level of ideas, of beliefs. It's easier than ever to connect with like-minded people. It's easier than ever to cut ties and walk away from people who think differently. And while there are really helpful, really healthy, really wonderful aspects of that, there's also some massive downsides, not least the increasing inability to engage with and encounter and be in communion with those uh, people with whom we don't agree on certain things or on everything. And this leads to more entrenched and hostile attachment to the ideas that we hold, increased dehumanization of of the other and a world at risk of all kinds of wars that spark from tiny tiny touch points and an inability and perhaps an unwillingness to properly and maturely engage in conflict in gentle and robust ways and this is another way that gentleness shows up as a a firm back and a soft front it's getting harder to know who to trust and easier than ever to block out opposing viewpoints Matt and Conrad say and as Conrad alludes to in our conversation Ideas Digest is a a practice for him it helps him uh, kind of practice softening minds expanding how we hold one another and our personal assumptions and biases, even when we completely disagree with people. So I'm going to be bringing my conversation with Conrad in throughout this episode um, as we really think about, you know, how minds are changed. Can we, how can we change other people's minds? Can we change other people's minds? How are our minds changed? How have we experienced our minds being changed uh, throughout our lives? And what can we learn from that? What can we take from that uh, in order to encounter and engage with people um, in in healthier and more um, constructive ways. You know, how do we hold to the ideas that define us? Do we allow our ideas to uh, define who we are? And how can we keep that firm back and soft front as we encounter one another? A few days before uh, we spoke, Conrad had received news that uh, he'd been fired from his job quite out of the blue. Um, essentially because his employer had received a complaint from somebody uh, about the ideas digest podcast um and he was he had no right of reply there was no process that that um he was sort of given access to in order to kind of defend himself and um there's a you can hear more about that on the ideas digest podcast himself he released an episode uh, where he and his wife Brooke were kind of processing the news fairly rawly fairly um Soon after um, he'd received a phone call from uh, from his boss. So, I'm really, really grateful that he was uh, still happy to join me at what was such a raw, such a difficult moment in his life. And it, it just sort of brought all the stuff that we were talking about and the stuff that I, I wanted to explore with him and the stuff that he does in the Ideas Digest podcast and the, the kind of purpose of it um, kind of brought that into a, a new stark light and and kind of took it to a, a new level of reality i suppose so um yeah really grateful to to conrad for for um chatting with me in that within that context so we started by diving into um his story you know the stuff that's led him to this place where he's uh, i guess risking even his livelihood to have conversations with people um on different sides of all kinds of uh divisions <music>
1: Yeah, I wonder, yeah, where, where, where does that story begin? I think it just begins with my genetic combination combined with a growing up in a pro, a progressive arm of a conservative church. So my family was a bit more progressive, but the church itself was more conservative. So I was always around this, this clash of like, uh, what, what's the word, like coalitions or like what's the political word where there's like the factions, the factions within even mm-hmm. the one religion. So I kind of grew up aware of like these differences that that existed even within the one denomination. And then as I grew up, I was just I think I just always asked questions and always, I guess would challenge any sort of authority figure that would tell me something. I'd go, okay, that makes sense. And just keep asking, asking questions. And then as I got older, I just hit I began to hit walls. With certain people. So I grew up and all my friends are kind of leaving and just being like, this doesn't make sense. I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. And then I look around and I'm just the only one left. I'm kind of, you know, I've always, I've I've been, cause I grew up in the more liberal arm. I'm like, people think differently. That's okay. Isn't it? Like different Protestant denominations. That's okay. And then it kind of expands and you go, well, I mean, what are the odds that I was born into the right religion? Cause every Protestant <laughs> denomination, every, a lot of religions think they're the one. And I'm like, geez, what are the odds on that? And so mm. I guess that upbringing of being handed a worldview, a religious worldview, a picture of the universe that people around me are saying, this is it, this is the one. And then asking questions, finding those questions often intimidate people or make people afraid or like people receive the questions differently as I continue to discover. But it was just always my propensity. I just I couldn't, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help but ask questions. I couldn't help but like deconstruct all the ideas people are handing me. And then find the best ones out there. And eventually like you start looking outside your religion and you go, hang on. And then once you start looking outside your religion, you start looking back at your religion going, oh, I can see how other people see it now. And so I guess like out of that, and then obviously you can probably hear from my accent, Uh, I live in Australia and the Australian culture, if you're familiar, is a very relaxed, um, follow the status quo. We like rules. You know, I discovered over COVID, we're a bit of a Dibber Dobber nation. we will like Dobby our neighbor. Oh, he's got some friends over. Yeah, go get him. Um, Anyone (laughs) who's breaking rules. So that's kind of the, the cultural construct. And I think this podcast was kind of born out of necessity. I needed to find a space where I could just ask questions, explore ideas openly and just find people who are willing because as I asked questions, I just looked around and I was the only one asking them or even caring about the answer so it was yeah. I just I don't think I could help it I could I, I could just see ideas I got curious and I just wanted to connect with people and have conversations where people also enjoyed the questions I would ask and um, and the conversations that that might come from encountering just new perspectives and new worldviews so I, that's probably like a bit of a rough religion slash Australian cultural context uh, in there for you. It's
0: really interesting to think of the underlying structures that inform how we engage with one another, the cultural context that sets up what is good and proper. I was recently talking to somebody about the, Uh, aspects of the unwritten etiquette of life that is particularly prevalent in British culture. Um, You know, you're supposed to just know the right way to behave in particular contexts. And if you get it wrong, you're probably going to be tutted at. (laughs) Or people are going to mutter under their breath about, we've seen what they're up to. there." And if you get it really wrong, someone might leave a a note (laughs) or something on your car or in the refrigerator or maybe in, in, in your shoes or something like that, you know, passive aggression is often preferred to the over addressing of, uh, of issues. You know, this, this kind of idea that conflict is, is a healthy thing, like actually addressing things at their source before they become something more before they become massively resent, resentment fueled and, uh, kind of at, at risk of developing into, um, a war and enemy making and all that kind of stuff there are things you're not supposed to ask you learn those things growing up when you ask them um to adults who kind of give you a frosty reception and (laughs) refuse to answer them Um, and there are things that you're not supposed to talk about and we learn them as well and actually when you examine things more closely you often discover that these suppressed things the things you're not allowed to ask the things you're not allowed to talk about um are really kind of core dictates things that influence a lot of culture beneath the surface almost at an unconscious uh, level prohibition doesn't usually eradicate something it often makes it more desirable and more alluring and it's the same within this realm of ideas and beliefs or at least the people who hold them you know if we don't reject and dehumanize people uh, because their beliefs don't kind of fit with, with whatever set of assumptions or ideas we, that, that we kind of want to accept. We have also dehumanised ourselves through their eyes, you know, down the line. They're no longer going to see us as human. They see us as an enemy, an obstacle in some way. This might not have an implication um, down the line, but it may well do because it just sort of, uh, the prohibition just funnels it somewhere else. It funnels the symptom to another place where it's going to erupt in a different way. So changing people's minds rarely happens when we prohibit their ideas. It might suppress them. It might uh, push them out of view. Might It might allow us to pretend that they no longer, um, that those ideas no longer exist. But we don't soften the mind. We only shift the expression of the idea. So what are ideas? You know, using this word, like, what does it even mean? What is an idea? Um, They are rather unique to us as a species, aren't they? The ability to conceptualize something that we cannot see. That is a a rather remarkable (laughs) ability that is not, um, it's not sort of well shared across the animal kingdom.
1: It's so interesting, isn't it? Like, are ideas just stories we tell ourselves? Like, are they, is it, is an idea this external projection of a story that I have that I think is true from my experience? And then do I turn it into an idea and then I say this is how the world is and I try and objectify it because I think in this modern world, the subjective has no weight. It's like, oh, but that's an anecdote. That doesn't count. This scientific way of thinking makes us go, oh, it's got to be objective. So now we all talk objectively and I wonder if, and I have no idea if this is true as I just explore ideas myself, I wonder if ideas are just this, this way of telling a story about ourselves to everybody else as if it's fact, as if it's true. And when we try and convince other people of my ideas, I'm I'm more right than you. You should be, you should vote for the Tories or the or Labor or you know, whoever, I'm trying to convince you. I'm trying to validate myself if I can convince you. If I can convince you my worldview is correct, that validates my story. But it's all the conversation of ideas. So it's like, I think you know that like ideas I keep encountering are so closely held, but often we don't even know that we hold them that closely. We, we keep deferring to this language of logic. And I think what I keep trying to do on the podcast, and it's easier with some and harder with others, is to re-ground those ideas in the human subjective experience. It's like we can talk about logical ideas, but I've spoken to enough people to just kind of assume that when people use the word logic, it's just logical. Just, it's just common sense. It makes sense. I just, in my head, always just go, for you. And when I accuse someone else of being illogical, it's kind of just me saying that is not how I process that exact thing. And obviously, you know, we can get into the scientific ways of thinking and that kind of tries to get lots of worldviews and put them across each other and then come to one consensus. But I don't think that's how we go through life engaging with ideas. So, I mean, like ideas fascinate me because I think we are more comfortable taught, well, at least for me and maybe males in general, if I stereotype males, we're more comfortable projecting ideas and talking about ideas, but then what do, what do those ideas say about us? I think they're the window into our experiences, how we see the world, and then how we treat people accordingly. The judgments we have about others are all wrapped up in our life experience, the ideas we hold, the concepts. And I, I guess I'm trying to like pull apart all of those things, separate the human from the ideology or the idea to just see if we can connect with an idea. Cause we always disagree with everybody about something and it's always on the level of ideas. And then we cast that person out because we heard an idea that was controversial or we didn't agree with. And I guess I'm just trying to (laughs) recapture some of that curiosity to go, well, they think it because they believe it to be the most logical explanation of their life events. So maybe if I can find out about their life events, what happened to them and how they engage in the world, maybe I can find a person in there that I could relate to rather than just cancel them, kick them out, fight with them. Cause I think we've done enough of the other, I think we've done enough of the canceling fighting and, and um, arguing and it gets, I f- it gets us nowhere. It's fun and it can give us like some dopamine hits, but I think it honestly gets us nowhere. And I think we're just spiraling into more and more tribes. And when tribes get more and more disconnected and we lose the ability to converse, we just turn to war in whatever form it is, whether it's on social media or whether it's actual war. So I don't know that I think if that answers your question around ideas, I think they I think they're fascinating insights into people.
0: Yeah, so ideas come in all shapes and forms. I guess I'm not really interested in in picking apart the content of ideas as we go through this episode, but I, I, I'm rather more curious to think about um, the structural role they play in our lives, you know, how they help us make sense of the contradictions and differences at the heart of existence, at the heart of what it means to be alive, how they give us um, a sense of identity, a sense of understanding about ourselves and and our backgrounds and and our history and the story of our communities and all those kinds of things. How they help us alleviate both momentary and existential fears and dread. Um, How they can be useful in giving us a a direction and focus like in simple everyday ways and how they are used to control, to coerce, to manipulate. And I'm reminded of um, Adam Grant's book Think Again which is all about, you know, allowing ourselves not to know things um, in many ways. It helps raise awareness about how we hold and share um, the ideas, the beliefs that that we resonate with, the things that make sense to us at any given time, uh, the things that, that kind of inform our worldview and the things that we've grown up uh, kind of adopting and believing maybe. Um, and also how we engage with those who have different ideas, different beliefs, different ways of seeing things the world. And it's the holding part that's really interesting to me in the context of changing minds. Do we hold our beliefs, our knowledge, our ideas like the preacher, as Adam Grant describes it, where we say with certainty, I found the truth and it's my job to proselytize and to win souls for my cause. Or do we approach ideas like the prosecutor, where it's a, a zero sum game? I have an argument to win and I've, it's kind of my task to prove someone else is wrong. And with these two positions, there is only one mind that has to change and that is the other person's. We can stand still, we can freeze our knowledge, freeze our experience. If the other person doesn't change their mind, then they become this kind of outcast, this sinner, an idiot, a loser, guilty. Then there's the politician. So they're more focused on the audience that they're performing for, the audience looking on, they're lobbying, they're campaigning for support with a look of flexibility. They tell you what you want to hear. The politician doesn't change their mind, they just change the expression, um, the way that they convey an idea to fit the audience because it helps them to get something that they want that that audience can give them. And then the scientist. so Adam Grant describes this position as someone who has the humility and curiosity to know what they don't know and to doubt some of their existing conventions as they try to discover new information. The scientist mindset says, I will not let my ideas become an ideology. And so in this mode of thinking, when I start to form an opinion, I should treat it as a hypothesis before doing some observations or experiments to test it. I should be just as as excited to find out I was wrong as to prove I'm right. Perhaps I should be even more excited about being wrong, because if I'm always proving myself right, I'm just affirming my beliefs and not evolving them. And that's not learning at all. This is, of course, a model, not a description of those four people. You know, in reality, there are, of course, uh, preacher and prosecutor scientists and scientist politicians. But it's, it's sort of like giving us a picture of how we engage with our beliefs and ideas and how we hold the beliefs and ideas of other people with a soft front and a firm back, humility, curiosity and vision, or with a hard front and a flimsy back, hurling weapons towards a world that we're resenting and creating in the same motion. We create the thing that we react to through our resentment. We just make more of it. And this takes us on to how we encounter one another. I asked Conrad about uh, a clip by um, from a, a video by Peter Rollins that he uses in the introduction to the Ideas Digest podcast, um, it's from a, a video called "The Last Supper," where Pete is describing four ways of encountering other people within like a cultural or a societal uh, context, or just generally um, in community.
2: The first response is where we try to consume them, which means we take their difference their beliefs and practices, and we try to make them conform with our own. If we can't do that, the second response is often that of vomiting out. If I can't domesticate the other, I want to get them out of my community. I do not want to be confronted with them. The third response is toleration, where I can socialize with you and work with you as long as you keep your strange beliefs and practices behind closed doors. And finally, there's a form of dialogue where we can sit down together and talk about where we agree, that beneath the different streams of our beliefs, there is an ocean that we share. Now, the problem with all four of these responses is that in each of them, I'm right, and I am judging you. In the first three, I'm right and you're wrong. And in the fourth, we're both right. What's interesting in the genuine multicultural connection with another? is that at first, I see you as weird and monstrous. But then when I take the time to look at myself through your eyes, I experience my own beliefs and practices as strange and monstrous. My beliefs on marriage or my beliefs on God or culture are no longer something that's just right, but I begin to realize that they're contingent and historical and can be questioned.
0: I find this so challenging and interesting to think about. And I've been um, kind of reflecting on um, two other forms of holding people that we might also get drawn into, that kind of see happening in the world around us at the moment, which is, um, you know, firstly, you're right and I'm wrong. Um, So this sense of um, kind of guilt about my own position and then bestowing a purity onto another person or a group of people where we kind of prevent and prohibit them from being human. They're not allowed to be human because we turn them into this symbol of perfection. You know, it might be people of a, uh, a certain identity or religious background or ethnicity or whatever. And it can kind of act as this sort of reverse prejudice where we prevent people from being their um, their kind of messy, contradictory human selves because they belong to this, this vision of purity oneness wholeness completeness that we've constructed and then there's the position that operates from a place of um of both of us being wrong i'm wrong you're wrong it's kind of nihilistic sense that wow there's no truth everything's meaningless nothing matters so wow.
1: adding those two is, is a good way of i think they're a great addition to how we are all kind of engaging with these ideas there's that that last one is that nihilism that i think i encounter a lot which is like and this is what I think I got growing up was, oh, well, how do you know? it's all wrong. And then we just default to ourselves anyway. It's like, ah, oh, it's 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 almost like a a tap out. it's it's I can't engage with it. I don't care It's all wrong. We're all wrong. I don't care anymore. Yeah. And we just kind of give up on on that pursuit. and And that was sadly never an option for me. I couldn't do it, even if I wanted to
0: in his book, Mindwise, Nicholas Epley writes about the way we construct our own beliefs in relation to other people's actions. And he uh, refers to a a George Carlin clip from one of his stand-up routines that uh, is often something that I reference when I'm driving. Have you ever noticed when you're driving that anyone who's driving slower than you is an idiot? And anyone driving faster than you is a
1: maniac! (laughs) Say, look at this idiot here. Will you just look at this idiot just creeping along? Whoa, look at that maniac. Go!
0: (laughs) Heppley writes... If the illusions you hold about your own brain lead you to believe that you see the world as it actually is and you find that others see the world differently, then they might be the ones who are biased, distorted, uninformed, ignorant, unreasonable or evil. Having these kinds of thoughts about the minds of others is what escalates differences of opinion into differences worth fighting and sometimes dying for. This relates to a lot of what we think about during our month exploring the theme of belonging in the haven you know do we hold ideas as a route to belonging like grab and hoard ideas in this way so if you have the right ideas you belong to an inside but if you don't toe the line you are rejected you're um, left on the outside I really love the work of Todd McGowan as someone who writes about universality and um, it's uh, how it sort of fits with non-belonging universal non-belonging The the kind of true political emancipation is found through the understanding that that no one truly belongs. There is only non-belonging when it comes to this stuff. The lines we draw around our identities, our tribes, our inclusion are never enough. They are both incomplete and also too much. And there is always going to be somebody on the outside of it. So the way that we hold this stuff has real world implications. It impacts our self-worth, our mental health and our relationship with the possibilities for the future, both individually and collectively, as we sort of imagine, um, you know, what's next together. What do our ideas do to us positively, negatively, and indifferently? I was really interested to know, you know, what drives Conrad on with this stuff? Why is this worth exploring? Why is this worth taking a risk on?
1: You you talking about that is essentially probably the core of what really kind of started it going, yeah, like what can these ideas do to us? And that's a such like a Pete Rollins. And I think he's probably been inspired by Todd McGowan as well. And those two thinkers, I think are probably at the core of what I'm grappling with and, and experimenting with and going, how can, if we engage with this process, which let's face it, isn't popular, isn't easy. It's like eating your vegetables. No one wants to bloody do it, but everyone thinks it's a great idea. Uh, what can it, what can it do to us? Can it transform us? And, and sadly um, we'll do almost anything <laughs> to avoid doing that exact practice, I think.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder what the, what's the purpose of it? Like when, when you think about like what yeah. you're doing through the podcast, like what is the, why do you do it?
1: <laughs> yeah. I think there's so many different levels. Like I do it one cause I, I, I have fun and I, and I enjoy it, and I think I'm good at it, and so that that kind of keeps me coming back, going like I think I really enjoy doing this. But when to that level of like why bother? I'm still grappling with that, and I think if people ask me, I go well. At the at, at the bare minimum, can could could this be a practice or a process? One where you learn something new that'd be nice. Um, or two, can you can you understand? The person who revolts you the most, and can you almost get like, can I can I be some kind of immunization against hearing your uncle's crazy Trump ideas at Christmas dinner? Because I guess I feel like I'm I'm good at having these conversations, probably because I'm so privileged and detached from all of the outcomes of it. You know, I don't I don't have a personal stake in anything, so that so the trauma there isn't 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 there. So I can like talk to someone who's saying something probably very homophobic and I can just sit there and kind of prod and poke because it's not actually impacting me. So I have that position that I can, I can be in, which a lot of people can't because of their personal experience. And I understand that. I think, I actually don't think this podcast is for everyone because some people don't need to hear these ideas. They know what they have heard it their whole life and they don't need to understand it. But I think for a lot of us, it's like, when you're having that conversation with your crazy radical uncle or any saying some racist, sexist, whatever things that might be triggering you, they often, like people with those opinions, they can never articulate them very well. And so I guess I'm trying to go, what is it? It, Is there a blueprint of people? And maybe I'm reducing people to too small of a, a, a subset, which obviously you can't really do. But is there a roadmap that If I could talk to somebody who's quite articulate about being a pro-Trump supporter, can I get to the core of why this person finds Trump appealing so that when you sit across from your uncle, instead of just going toe-to-toe, it gets nowhere, it gets into an argument, he hardens, you're not convinced, no one's changing their mind. It's a pointless conversation. Can I immunize people a little bit against those conversations and inject a bit of humanity back into it? So when you hear him saying this anti-immigration rhetoric or this quite sexist language that, you know, Trump is like this or he thinks Trump's a great businessman, whatever, whatever it is, Trump being the example, um, I feel like it's safe to use with the UK and Australia. We're, we're kind of all on that side of things. With Americans, it's probably 50-50. But can, can when you hear that, can you hear something else? Could I have helped add a layer to it where you go, oh, I see he finds a certainty and security in the the fear that he might have of losing his job here. Like, Can I immunize people and prepare people to have the conversations to perhaps, and now this is where my idealism comes in. If we could do that, could we then build relationships that are larger than just agreeing on ideas? Could we see the humanity in somebody where I really like a guy even though he has some vile ideas or she has some radical, really crazy ideas. Could could we, is, is it possible to build relationships beyond these ideas? So I, I don't know if that's possible, but I think I've personally experienced it happen to myself a lot. I was recently talking to um, pro- or someone who, who definitely would be saying some sexist things. And a lot of like people who would be feminists would couldn't handle it. Couldn't understand it. And by the end of this conversation, I was like, I (laughs) like, it's a bad, I like this guy. Like I, I really understood where he was coming from. And I, and I could see in the conversation I could finally have with him face to face. I looked at his social media and just before I had him on, I was like, I was almost like, what the, F. Like he posted something on Instagram. I'm like, this is, I'm like, and part of me, I still fight it within myself. I'm like, Oh, I've got to prove this guy wrong. I've got to intellectually outmatch him and show him how dumb that idea is in front of everybody. And then as soon as I started talking to him, I could tell he was from a certain part of America and I could tell he potentially had a certain educational background. And I could just see that he was just a genuine guy with a family and I could see all of those things. And then that put that post into context. And by the end of that conversation, I'm like, I don't know. I can't help but like the guy. We would disagree on almost everything, but I really like the guy. And Mm. I guess what I'm trying to do is go, how can I make listening to someone you disagree with an enjoyable process where you can come out of it going, you know what? All right. I get it now. And I don't think I'm there yet if I'm honest. Like like, I'm trying, but that's the goal. And I guess that's the optimistic vision is like, do we have to agree with people to like them? I don't think so because otherwise our world just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and the Protestant world goes smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think you just, it just, you just end lonely. So I don't know, maybe Mm. I can equip people to maybe be able to have a broader range of friends outside of the echo chambers we occupy and the purity codes that we're a part of.
0: What do you make of Alain de Botton's suggestion that we simply share meals with those who disagree with us? Kind of, Challenging and a little bit sort of like, "Mm, I'm not sure about that. But sometimes we have to do this. But rather than just tolerating or sitting down to debate, this is an image of proximity. Adam Grant says, you know, perhaps it's not difference, but distance that breeds tribalism and hostility. And as proximity increases, so does a sense of understanding. So does a sense of connection to the humanness of the other person. And it resonates with what Abraham Lincoln said I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. It's obviously not easy and there are fewer opportunities that naturally kind of occur when we encounter one another in this way without having to sort of really go out of our way to make it, um, to make it happen. De Botton says, sitting down at a table with a group of strangers has the incomparable and odd benefit of making it a little more difficult to hate them with impunity. Prejudice and ethnic strife feed off abstraction. However, the proximity required by a meal, something about handing dishes around, unfurling napkins at the same moment, even asking a stranger to pass the salt, disrupts our ability to cling to the belief that the outsiders who wear unusual clothes and speak in distinctive accents deserve to be sent home or assaulted. For all the large-scale political solutions which have been proposed to solve ethnic conflict, there are very few more effective ways to promote tolerance between suspicious neighbours than to force them to eat supper. Together. This kind of reminded me of uh, something um, my friend Megan shared on Twitter. I think it's a couple of years ago, uh, but I, I took a note of it because of uh, my response to it, and then um, it kind of developed into a, a small conversation with with a couple of other people as well. Um, and she she'd, she'd uh, posted repeat after me just because I don't like what this person is saying, doesn't mean they're wrong, and I responded saying. Uh, just sort of adding, just because everyone agrees with me doesn't mean I'm right and just because someone disagrees with me doesn't mean I'm wrong. Um, And then my friend Peter added, just because I dislike someone doesn't mean they're wrong. Just because I like someone doesn't mean they're right. Just because I like someone they dislike doesn't mean they're wrong. Just because they like someone I dislike doesn't mean they're wrong. And then another friend, Steve, added, uh, someone who's been wrong about things before may be right this time someone who's been right about things before may be wrong this time um, and uh, it's just a really helpful kind of set of contradictory reminders and all of these sort of ideas that actually that this is human you know human interaction human engagement it's a messy process and when it comes to holding beliefs and ideas it's great to have um, a starting point to build and to grow from, um which Conrad describes as a sort of foundational assumptions that he takes into um, each encounter with with other people,
1: yeah, that's a good that's a good follow-up question because I think i'm I'm experimenting all of the time. And even when I'm not on my podcast and I find people who hold different political views, i tr- i'm I'm always experimenting. I'm like, can people change their mind? Is this a thing that happens? And I think the thing that I've found to work quite well for me, especially in the podcast at least, and I think as I engage with different people, it's like I have this, this set of foundational assumptions, I think. It's it's this when you were saying, do you like people? And I think that is a good Nailing down on what my foundational assumption is, is that people are inherently good. Now, people can argue with me, people can try and prove that wrong, but that's my foundational assumption that I think serves me quite well. And it's a choice I made. I went, Do I want to believe, like many religions say, like the Protestant tradition I came up in would say that people are fundamentally evil and I think that sets us on a path of defensiveness it sets us on a path of fear and protection we have to build walls to protect ourselves from the evil outsider Um, and so I kind of I flipped that and going well what do I lose if I assume people are fundamentally good so that that's the that's the starting place is like people people are doing their best with what they have and the the opinions they have and the ideas they hold and the things they do are a result of the life experience that I just choose to believe. If I had the same experiences, I'd probably think the same thing. So I think entering with that kind of good faith, I think is just otherwise why would you want to have that conversation? So you have to have that foundational assumption there and I think maybe it, it comes from a position where you know, you have to probably have, depending on the topic, have to have come through not a whole lot of trauma, I suppose, mm. to to be able to even be in that space. But we all can be in that space for ideas that aren't that personal to us. And then we can, I guess, build our tolerance to be able to do that. And I think, I think maybe you have to, <laughs> like, people ask me like, like, why bother? Why talk to that person? Why hear their ideas? And I just think, these ideas aren't going away. They're, we can either choose to push them underground or we can at least understand where they're coming from so that we can understand the people that are there. So for me, it's it's this genuine curiosity. And the other foundational assumption, I think, once again, whether it's right or wrong, so these, these are things that I wouldn't stake a claim on and say, I'm going to prove this to be true about humans, but it's just what I assume to be able to have those conversations. And so the first, so the first one is... I just think people are good. And the second one is I can't, I don't believe people change their minds. I don't believe I have the capacity to change someone's mind. And, you know, obviously I could be swayed on that. Maybe over time things drip when, if you can incept someone enough to make them think that your idea was their idea, I think they might be more likely to shift, but I think life experience changes people and conversations and logic. I'm just not a believer in it, which is why I guess my podcast is shifted away from this like I'm going to prove to you why you're wrong. One, I'm not informed enough mm. to have a good debate with somebody about every single topic and I just like being a broad um, giving a like doing broad topics, different ideas. But if I enter that conversation believing I can't change your mind, then I my whole dialogue is different. I'm not going to be pitching to you these ideas and we're not going to get stuck in a rut. Like you listen to these debates where they just go back and forward and neither is fully understanding the other. You just go in circles and both leave without changing their mind. Now, I think debates are useful, but it depends on like what's the context of the conversation. So with most conversations, I just think, what's the point in trying to change your mind? I just think the stakes are so low. So that's, I guess, the other one, I guess, as I move through them, I think people are good. I think I can't change anyone's mind. And I just think I'm not that important And this idea isn't that important. And it probably sounds callous to certain ideas because some ideas, you know, white supremacy are pretty hectic and they impact people on a real level. But then I just put myself into that context. I'm like, who am I? Just some Aussie with a podcast. I'm not going to change some guy's mind. And so that the stakes are just lower. So at Christmas dinner, uncle, uncle Tony or whatever his name is, is railing some pretty sexist things. and You're like, I really don't appreciate that. But I don't know. You're not going to change his mind. The argument's going to just harden him. So the stakes are so low. If I if I can't do anything, what would be a better way of doing that? So I guess remove like just realizing I'm not that important. I can't change anyone's mind. Like I've had I had this debate recently, and super friends of the I Digest podcast who support the show heard it like live. So the conversation you were referencing, um, which is one of the recent episodes about um I think it was about women and men and their roles. And it kind of we 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 had to reshoot it because halfway through we just got into a debate and it was like like some ideas are too dangerous to explore. Like what's the point? Like we need to call this stuff out and we just went back and forth on it and I think ideologically I'm like I just think calling things out gets us nowhere. It I just don't believe it helps. It make it lets me moral grandstand, but it just it does nothing but signal to my tribe, hey, I'm in. And then it signals to the other tribe, he's out. And I just, I just, maybe I could have my mind changed on this, but I felt like it get us nowhere. So we went back and forth on that as well. So I guess I just think like I'm not important enough to change anyone's mind, but I can understand them. And then so it becomes, I guess, maybe selfishly about me. Maybe I can evolve. Maybe I can be able to hold this tension that people can't. And maybe we can create a space where people can connect. So I don't, if they're helpful, um, I think the most helpful one is like, you're not going to change anyone's mind. (laughs) I don't think Mm. you are. Give it a go. I mean, I've tried it for a long, long time in my life because I always loved getting into arguments, just never worked. So I'm just trying something else and I have more fun with it. So I don't know if they're helpful tips. That's what kind of what I do in the show.
0: I really love this idea of giving ourselves a foundational starting point, regardless of the person, you know, what do we want to believe that will help shape our, uh, our encounter or direct our encounter in a way that um, assists a deeper vision or a deeper uh, kind of intention or a set of values that we hold that we want to take into those um, th- those experiences. You know, one of mine probably the sense that hurt people hurt people. Anger is an expression of pain. When people feel lonely, afraid, unseen, they quickly adopt strategies to, uh, to hoard safety, to to feel protected, to feel a sense of significance, to, to be seen by the world in some way. In other words, people have needs. And when those needs are, are left unmet, they can do terrible things. If we react to terrible things by further rejecting the human at the heart beneath those terrible things, the terrible things are often likely to get worse. To so starting... From a place of empathy, empathy for the person beneath the strategy, beneath the belief, beneath the idea. James Clear uh, writes that facts don't change our, our minds, friendship does. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's not that we should be friends with people that, you know, like you can't be friends with everybody, but to uh, simply recognize that logic doesn't do the job of changing minds. Minds harden when a person feels. Um, afraid of something or looks at other people in a certain way where they've maybe been rejected by them in some way. We live in a world of logic bullies, don't we? Logic bullies are everywhere, um, especially on social media. And one of Adam Grant's students used this term to describe something he was doing when rather than hearing what she was saying, there was a need being expressed um, by this student. He basically shut her, shut down her feelings and and the needs beneath the feelings using cold, hard facts and just sort of uh, almost doing what he um, doing, doing what he could to reassure her, but also undermining the thing that actually was being expressed. People don't respond to logic until they feel seen and heard at that human level.
1: Maybe we're just limited. Like our life experiences, like I, I look at my wife who is, are you a Enneagram guy? Do you know the Enneagram much? I've dabbled, yeah. Yeah, it's like a personality typing thing, which I find yeah. interesting to judging categorize people and understand how they see the world. And my wife and I are very different. So it is like, mm-hmm. I'm like all in the head. It's all ideas. It's just like churning around. It doesn't switch off. It's just firing. My wife lives in the emotional realm. And I just had to come to this point where I go, I don't get it. I can't see it. I don't understand it. And, and I think that's, that's what I've found is now makes it easier for me to change my mind is because if I can admit my limitations with this, like my neurology just does not fire in the same way hers does. So I cannot see the world the way she sees the world. So I just have to like step back and go, Oh, I just have no idea. It's like the whole gay marriage debate that was kind of going up. It's like, I do not, I do not know what it is like to look at a guy and be attracted. I don't know what it's like. I just, I just can't imagine it. So there's a limitation to my experience there. And I think th- being able to acknowledge that has helped me change my mind, but I'm still probably very, very stubborn on, 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 on a lot of things. And as I move through like what changes my mind, I think the thing that shifts me the most is probably the suffering <laughs> that you encounter that I have at least encountered, not like I've had major suffering, but I think we all encounter it, you know, the death of people and things like that. Like that's what shifts my perspective the most. And I think, I think I've discovered logic doesn't really do that it's it's my experiences around things. It's my encounters with people. If I'm going to have my mind changed about somebody else, it's going to be a conversation and an interaction with them. If I'm going to be hardened towards someone that I dislike because of something they did to me, it's because of something they did to me. And no amount of logic is going to make me really be open to an idea that is counter to what I experienced emotionally or experientially through that. So it's like, I described it as you know, friends of the Ideas Diverse podcast. I started a podcast with a really good friend who probably would be doing it two years, and then he suddenly died. And that, um, that just—I hadn't really experienced like death that close to me in my life, and I, I just describe it as just a whole new depth of experience. Now I just watch movies when someone dies and I cry, and I never did because now it's like I can just. Feel something I could never feel. And I, and I just wonder if that's at the core of how we change our minds. It's just life is going to hand us things and maybe it's going to give us the capacity to be open individuals or not. And I feel like whether I'm wrong or right about that, at least when I encounter someone who's narrow, judgmental, um, who doesn't give me the right of reply, who cost me my career, I'm not speaking from experience here, I can look at them and go, right, so something's happened in their life and the way in which they encounter the world that doesn't enable them to be as open to nuance as perhaps I think I am. And it's not a character f- like I'm. you might look at it as a character flaw, which potentially it could be, but it's also not a virtue for me. I didn't choose, I just guess I just look at it, I didn't choose this. I was just handed it in my life and I was handed that capacity and people have far greater capacity than me to do that. And maybe I can try and pursue that. And I'm trying to work out how do I remain an open person? How do I, what are the ideas or the practices that I need to have in order to remain open minded, which brings me back to the podcast. It helps me remain open minded, but maybe there's other things as well. Maybe there's other spiritual practices or I know listening to podcasts that have debates and stuff. I don't know, things like that, probably valuing it like has kept me at least aspiring to it, whether I do it or not. Because I'll have conversations with my best mate who I was just hanging out with and we're just both not budging. So I'm like, I I might be projecting this bastion of like, I'm just an open-minded guy who's just really reasonable. I assure you that is not the case.
0: I wonder if you can think of any times in your life when you've changed your mind about something. What allowed that to happen? Who or what convinced you to shift your thinking or your position? A huge thing for me and many people is space and grace, you know, from another person. If I feel like I've got the choice and the power in my hands to explore and to shift my position and it's not going to kind of turn into a gotcha moment for the other person or like they're going to claim the victory or the ownership over this, this thing. Oh, he, he's changed his mind because of me. Um, if I feel that kind of pressure, I probably won't allow myself the possibility of the change. I can sense myself I can feel the resistance within me I've thought about times in my life when I would have loved to change my mind on particular things but didn't didn't allow myself to because I couldn't concede the cost of doing so to the other person A stubborn part of me uh, which I've, I've I guess I've softened to some degree over the years but I've also used this awareness um, to inform how I want to hold other people how I want to uh, hold ideas in the world around me Binaries, opposites, black and white thinking often just leads to brittle fragility. When our minds are unable to change, soften, or expand, they become easily breakable. They become more fragile. If we're afraid of changing, softening, expanding, we spend focus and energy and attention on gathering information to protect, to reinforce, and to solidify. Our position, the position we're already sort of holding, that we're doubling down into. We shrink into a narrower and narrower position, living from a place of defense and attack rather than creative expansion and curious exploration. How we think informs our attachment to what we think, you know, the, the substance, the content, how we hold that stuff. If we identify strongly with our thoughts and our beliefs and attach value and worth to being steadfast in certainty and conviction, then we will engage with everything like that. And how we hold others beneath the certainties and convictions of their, their own ideas and beliefs, that is going to pave the way for what they do next. How we hold them will inform how they kind of proceed. I finished my conversation with Conrad by talking about the mustard seed parable, which is a story that I've shared a number of times in different places uh, because it's, it's got a really interesting hold on me. It's something that I really, I it's, i can't let go of at the moment. Um, it's the story, uh, it's an old uh, kind of Buddhist parable um, of, of the mustard seed where a mother is completely devastated after the death of her young child. She walks Round the town with the child bound to her chest, unable to come to terms with the loss, desperate to bring the child back to life, she learns of a wise woman in the mountains who, she's told, can help. The wise woman reassures the mother after she visits, telling her she can give her what she needs, but all she requires from her is to bring her a single mustard seed from a household in the town that's never known grief or loss. So the bereaved mother sets off with hope, knocking one door after another, but to no avail. The simple request cannot be granted. So she spends many hours in each home learning about her neighbours and sharing her own tragic tale. They share together, cry together, laugh together, reminisce together And the mother eventually comes to see that stories of loss and grief and pain sit behind every door of this community. And after a while, she's able to come to terms with the reality of her devastating loss and is able to bury her son's body. I love this story, not necessarily... As a tale of coming to terms with the existence of suffering and the fact that it's part of life, but as a story of healing, not healing as a road to to kind of complete wholeness, but as a pathway of human connection. The encounters behind each door with every conversation comes compassion and communion. There are all kinds of things that we carry like the young child. Debt, shame, loneliness, anxieties, failure, missed opportunities, disappointments, fears, breakup, losing a job, deep sadness, and so on. These things that we search to fix or undo with magical thinking. The wise woman knows that, what is wanted and what is needed in this situation are two different things. But rather than using logic to dismiss the mother and say that's, you know, I could of course I can't do that. She gives her what she needs in that moment. Hope. By seeing and honoring her want. And she knows that on her quest for the magic that can't be given, she will find what is true and what is real the communion of humanity, this shared story, the fact that no one can provide the mustard seed. And through sharing those stories about what invalidates their mustard seed, a true sense of unbelonging together occurs behind each door. So I finished by asking Conrad, you know, what he would say if that knock at the door came. We had a really interesting chat about, what the door is you know this door as a bridge between you know the other person and us there is someone knocking at the door every day do we see them do we recognize what they are really asking for or do we see this stuff the the things that they're wrapped in it might they their needs their pain their suffering might be wrapped up in some chaotic and messy stuff some really Um, horrible, horrible beliefs that that we find intolerable? And are we able to hear the question beneath the question? So we explored, you know, how this is about awareness and choice as well. You know, we can't open the door to everyone and the option of saying no has to be on the table. But it's about becoming aware enough to turn that into an option rather than a default way of encountering, receiving, holding and responding to people. Becoming aware that there is a question beneath the question. The whole conversation is available in the Haven. If you go to the Haven.co, um, it's in the library there. So if you found this interesting, you want to hear, um, you know, the conversation kind of uninterrupted by me <laughs> with the original questions, then uh, come and check it out there. Um, I yeah, really hope that you've enjoyed this episode. A, a massive. Thank you again to Conrad for taking the time to explore this stuff with me. I find it so uh, fascinating and, and and it's been really enriching. Do go and check out the Ideas Digest podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, go and support the show. Uh, I know uh, Conrad would be so, so grateful for, for any of that. Uh, follow them on social media. I'll put links in the show notes to, uh, to the different socials. Um, And yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Um, Until next time, do remember that even when it appears not to be, gentleness is always an option. Take care. Bye-bye.